Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. In Bristol, I don't know if you've heard, but there's been a toppling over of a certain statue And whilst I was doing some research for another show that I'm about to do, I discovered that there is only one female statue in the whole of Bristol, and that is of Queen Victoria. So armed with this knowledge, I decided to do a tweet about it. And that's when the fun began. The upshot of this was that people started tweeting about which female historical figure in Bristol's history should have a statue. One of the names that came up is today's historical profile, Elizabeth Blackwell. Now, this is a woman that was born in Bristol, but moved to America when she was only 11 years old, and is considered the first woman doctor of medicine in modern times. Elizabeth Blackwell was born February 3rd, 1821, in Counterslip, Bristol, the third of nine children of Hannah Lane and Samuel Blackwell, a sugar refiner and a Quaker and an anti-slavery activist, who homeschooled his entire family with a series of hired private tutors. Now, among Elizabeth's famous relatives, there is her brother, Henry, a well-known abolitionist and woman suffrage supporter who married a women's rights activist, Lucy Stone. Emily Blackwell, Elizabeth's sister, who also went into medicine, and Elizabeth's sister-in-law, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, the first ordained female minister in a mainstream Protestant denomination. When Elizabeth was 11, the sugar refinery her dad owned burned down and along with the family's liberal social and religious views they decided to emigrate to the United States in the summer of 1832. Soon after taking up residence in New York her father Samuel Blackwell became active in abolitionist activities. They spent the next six years in New York City and the suburbs of Long Island and New Jersey. Elizabeth attended school and threw herself into the abolitionist movement, attending anti-slavery meetings and sewing for fundraising fairs. 
in 1838 at the age of 17 and with her father's new sugar refinery struggling, business prospects lured the family to Cincinnati. They were full of hope and eager anticipation, she wrote, but within a few months of arriving, her father died, leaving the family penniless. To support the family, Elizabeth and her sisters opened a young ladies' day and boarding school. They closed it after a few years, and Elizabeth went on to teach in several states. It is during this time that she had the meeting with a dying family friend that changed her life. When Elizabeth Blackwell was a 24-year-old teacher, she visited a close family friend dying of uterine cancer, who spoke of how she had suffered at the hands of male doctors during her medical treatment. Why not study medicine? the friend asked. If I could have been treated by a lady doctor, my worst sufferings would have been spared me. Elizabeth later recalled, I hated everything connected with the body and could not bear the sight of a medical book. Another reason Blackwell sought an absorbing occupation, as she put it, was to avoid the pitfalls of love. Around the time of her friend's death, Blackwell wrote in her diary, after suffering in love. I felt more determined than ever to become a physician and thus place a strong barrier between me and all ordinary marriage. I must have something to engross my thoughts, some object in life which will fit this vacuum and prevent this sad wearing away of the heart. week, may I present you with Ergophobia. This is the morbid fear of returning to work. For example, the worst employees suffer from extreme ergophobia on Mondays. Talking about jobs, it reminded me of one that I had years and years ago down at Avonmouth. I still can't believe I got fired from the calendar factory. All I did was take a day off. And now we'll continue with our story about Elizabeth Blackwell, the Bristol lass that went over to America. In those days, most male physicians trained as apprentices to experienced doctors. There were very few medical college and none that accepted women, although a few women did also apprentice and became unlicensed physicians. So now armed with her newfound ambition, her teaching jobs took on a new meaning to earn money, to fund her education. She took a post teaching music in South Carolina, where she boarded with the family of a distinguished physician who gave her access to his vast medical library, and she spent all her spare time studying. And in 1847, she returned to Philadelphia and began seeking admission into a medical school, hoping her Quaker friends might be able to help. All the leading schools rejected her application. Elizabeth then broadened her search to include the smaller schools of the northern states, country schools as they were called. Among them was Geneva Medical College in upstate New York, which accepted her by vote not of the faculty, but of the students. 
turns out, when the students were asked to vote, they thought it was a joke, so they all voted yes. On October the 20th, 1847, Elizabeth received an acceptance letter that became one of her most cherished possessions. In October 1847, the entire medical class at Geneva adopted her resolution, stating in part, To every branch of scientific education, the door should be open equally to all, that the application of Elizabeth Blackwell to become a member of our class meets our entire approbation. And in extending a unanimous invitation, we pledge ourselves that no conduct of ours shall cause her to regret her attendance at this institution. Her two years of study there were extremely difficult. Blackwell slowly realised that many women in the small town considered her odd, so she kept to herself, and much of the male student body ostracised her and harassed her, and she was at first even barred classroom demonstrations, fearing that, as a female, her constitution would be too weak. She persevered, however, and in January 1849 ranked first in her class. She became the first woman in the United States to graduate from medical school and the very first modern-day woman doctor of medicine. On graduation day, the town turned out to be packed for the ceremony and fell silent when Dr. Blackwell was called up last to receive her diploma. She said, It shall be the effort of my life, by God's blessing, to shed honour on this diploma. The crowd burst into applause. For this week's Book of the Week, I'd like to offer up A History of Women in a Hundred Objects by Maggie Andrews and Janice Lomas. Now, this was sent to me by the History Press Company. It highlights such things as a newspaper report about the wife for sale, right through to stuff like Marilyn Monroe's subway dress. As you can imagine, this book is packed with a large variety of objects. And it's all about women. Some of these objects have been controlling, whilst others have been liberating. This book is easy to understand and has lots of lovely pictures. So I'd thoroughly recommend it. Now let us continue with our story about the formidable Elizabeth Blackwell. When she received her degree in 1849, the news travelled far. The editor of the National Era, a weekly newspaper in Washington, D.C., wrote a long article about her. And here's an extract. She is one of those who cannot be hedged up or turned aside, or defeated. She is a woman not of words, but of deeds, and all those who only want to talk about it may as well give up. In April, having become a nationalised US citizen, Blackwell travelled to England to seek further training and in May she went to Paris, where in June she entered the midwife's course 
at La Maternité. Neither the advice to go to Paris nor the suggestion of disguise tempted me for a moment. It was to my mind a moral crusade on which I had entered. A course of justice and common sense. It must be pursued in the light of day and with public sanction in order to accomplish its ends. She began to emphasise preventative care and personal hygiene, recognising that male doctors often cause epidemics by failing to wash their hands between patients. One day, when syringing the infected eye of a baby, the fluid spurted into Dr Blackwell's eyes, despite an intensive treatment that included leeches and cauterising the eyelids. She went blind in her left eye, which had to be surgically removed. Elizabeth's dream to become a surgeon was forever dashed. In October 1850, Elizabeth returned to England and worked at St Bartholomew's Hospital under Dr James Paget. In the summer of 1851, she returned to New York, where she was refused posts in the city's hospitals and dispensaries and was even unable to rent private consulting quarters. Her private practice was very slow to develop and in the meantime, she wrote a series of lectures published in 1852 as The Laws of Life with special reference to the physical education of girls. In 1853, with the help from her Quaker friends, Blackwell opened a small dispensary in a slum district near Tompkins Square where an impoverished immigrant community that lacked hot water and indoor toilets and battled outbreaks of typhoid, diphtheria and other diseases resided. In the one-room clinic, which was funded in part by a group of local Quakers, she provided free health care to women and children who couldn't afford it. That same year, feeling lonely and isolated, Elizabeth adopted a seven-year-old Irish girl called Kitty from an orphanage on Randall's Island. Kitty lifted Dr Blackwell's spirits. I feel full of hope and strength for the future, Dr Blackwell wrote in one sunny Sunday as Kitty played beside her with a doll. Who will ever guess the restorative support which that poor little orphan has been to me? Within a few years she was joined by her younger sister, Dr Emily Blackwell, as well as Dr Marie Zaksuska, and in May 1857... The dispensary, greatly enlarged, was incorporated as the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, an institute that would last more than a hundred years. Elizabeth made many trips back to England to raise funds and to try and establish a similar infirmary here. In January 1859, during a year-long lecture tour of Great Britain, she became the first woman to have her name placed on the British Medical Register. Let's continue with our story about the incredible Elizabeth Blackwell. At the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, Dr Blackwell played a major role, establishing an association to coordinate the training of nurses for the battlefield and the collection of supplies. 
This evolved into the Women's Central Association of Relief and the U.S. Sanitary Commission, approved by President Abraham Lincoln himself, whom she met when she visited him in the White House, having established that clean sanitary conditions were an important aspect of health, especially in war, and used this time to select and train nurses for war service. After her meeting with Lincoln, Elizabeth wrote a letter straight away to her daughter Kitty. She describes Lincoln as a tall, ungainly, loose-jointed man was standing in the middle of the room. He came forward with a pleasant smile and shook hands with us. I should not at all have recognised him from the photographs. He is much uglier than any I have seen. Then he plumped his long body down on the corner of the large table, caught up one knee, looking for all the world like a Kentucky loafer on some old tavern steps and began to discuss some point about the war. During the 1860s and 1870s, Elizabeth continued to raise much-needed support in Britain to get acceptance of women in medicine. In November 1868, all the hard work paid off, and, with some help and consultation from her friend Florence Nightingale, Elizabeth added the Women's Medical College at the New York Infirmary. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell set very high standards for admission, academic and clinical training and certification for the school, which continued in operation for 31 years. She herself occupied the chair of hygiene. In 1869, Blackwell moved permanently to England. She established a successful private practice, helped organise the National Health Society in 1871, which aimed to educate people about the benefits of hygiene and a healthy lifestyle. The motto was, prevention is better than cure. And that's a phrase that we still recognise today. Elizabeth was also campaigning alongside others for the admission of women to medical degree courses. Now, this hard work finally paid off when legislation was passed in 1876. Meanwhile, in 1874, Elizabeth, along with other British physicians such as Sophia Jex Blake and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, established the London School of Medicine for Women. The main goal was to prepare women for the licensing exam of Apothecaries Hall. A year later, Elizabeth was appointed Professor of Gynaecology at the school a position she held until 1907, when she retired at the age of 86. Elizabeth felt very strongly about the need for more women in medicine. She also felt strongly about the Contagious Diseases Act in England. This act was passed in response to the spread of sexually transmitted infections in the country. The acts enabled police officers to arrest women who they assumed to be prostitutes and then force any of them to be checked for sexually transmitted infections, and later allowed the police to lock up those women who did test positive, to be quarantined in small rooms for up to a year. At the time, physicians assumed that only women could transmit sexual infections. Blackwell spent 17 years in England educating the public on sanitary guidelines to prevent sexually transmitted infections, and pushing for the Contagious Diseases Act 
to be stopped. Also, during her time in England, Blackwell delivered speeches at the Working Women's College on how women could maintain their own health and the health of their families. Through the late 1870s, Elizabeth travelled far and wide around Europe to find new audiences, and in 1878 in Nice, France, Blackwell wrote a counsel to parents on the moral education of their children, basically saying that it was the responsibility of the parents to teach their children about reproductive health and wellness. Elizabeth would also lecture at the London School of Medicine for Women on gynaecology and the study of the female reproductive system. In 1908, Elizabeth had a terrible fall and suffered a hip injury. After that, her health steadily declined and a stroke took her life at the age of 89 at her home in Rock House in Hastings. She specified burial in Kilman, Scotland, a place she particularly enjoyed visiting in later life. give you little nuggets of information. On the 29th of June in 1855, the Daily Telegraph was first published in London. On the 1st of July in 1916, the Battle of the Somme began, a major British offensive of World War I against German troops in northwestern France. It developed into the bloodiest battle in world history. On the first day alone, of the 120,000 Allied troops who launched the initial attack. Nearly 20,000 were killed, most of them in the first hour, and another 37,000 were wounded. 37 sets of British brothers lost their lives on the battle's first day, and one man was killed every 4.4 seconds, making July the 1st, 1916, the bloodiest single day in the history of the British Army. Also on July the 1st, for all you tennis fans, in 1977, Virginia Wade defeated Betty Stowe to win the women's singles title at Wimbledon. And on the 3rd of July, not only did John Logie Baird, in 1928 make the world's first coloured television transmission from London's Covent Garden, but also the English guitarist with the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, died in 1969, and the US singer with the Doors, Jim Morrison, died in 1971. I'm going to end today's story by telling you some of those, just a few of the ways that Elizabeth Blackwell has influenced the world in general, really. Um, to say her lifetime's work was significant is an understatement. 
1881, there were only 25 female doctors registered in England and Wales, but in 1911, there were 495. In 1949, the Blackwell Award Medal was established. It is given to women that have outstanding achievements in the practice of medicine. In 1973, Elizabeth Blackwell was one of the first 20 women selected for inclusion in the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York, the past focal point of America's early women's rights activity. In 1974, the US Postal Service issued an 18-cent stamp in honour of Dr Elizabeth Blackwell. Now, the hospital she started eventually became the General Hospital, serving the general public. Its name shortened to the New York Infirmary. During its first hundred years, it cared for more than one million men, women and children, according to a book by the New York Infirmary that celebrated its century of service infirmary eventually evolved into what is today New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan Hospital, home to hallway murals depicting the infirmary and dispensary. When you go in there, you'll also find a street corner named Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell Place and Dr. Blackwell's writing desk that came from right here in Bristol. Here's a little bit of trivia. Elizabeth was pursued by suitors with proposals of marriage, but always declined, realising women in that age were expected to be subservient to their husbands, and that would have hindered her career. As mentioned earlier, the Blackwell family had quite a few members of note. Elizabeth's sister, Emily, was also a physician. Their brother, Henry, was a noted abolitionist and woman's suffrage activist. His wife, Lucy Stone, the famous women's suffrage leader. Their daughter, Alice Stone Blackwell, was also active in both suffrage and temperance. And Antoinette Brown Blackwell, sister-in-law to Elizabeth, Henry and Emily, was a reformer and the first woman in the United States to become an ordained minister. Even though Antoinette completed the theological course in 1850 and her professors had allowed her to preach, they refused to license her to allow her to graduate. Eventually, though, in September 1853, she was ordained minister of the Congregational Church in South Butler, New York. And that, my friends, is how she became the first ordained woman minister in America. I hope you enjoyed that. I was quite surprised how many people I know hadn't actually heard of her. And uh, it's it's quite sad, really, that local history isn't taught in local schools, um, not even nowadays. Like I said earlier, I only really found out about her because I mentioned that there's only one female statue in the whole of Bristol. Statues seemed to be a topic of conversation at the time. And since I've started this show, I've discovered that there are so many fascinating people out there that have just been forgotten. But don't worry, because I'm on the case, and I'm going to bring them all to you in future shows. Next week is a case in point, because I've got a fantastic show lined up for you. I found some letters from soldiers writing back home to their families in Bristol from the trenches of the Boer War. 
This particular war also came under the name of the South African War, and it lasted from October 11th, 1899 to May 31st, 1902. And it was between Great Britain and two Boer republics, the South African Republic and the Orange Free State. The politicians at times say they were defending their authority over the area, but it was probably for control of what was the largest gold mining complex in the world at the time. The Backtracker History Show. Stories from the past, brought back to life. Now, if you've got an idea for a story that you think would be good on the show, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook by using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>